Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Performing artists have shown great resilience throughout COVID-19. Though the pandemic closed theaters, concert halls, and public venues, Artists pivoted to virtual platforms, staying connected to audiences with newfound creativity. Music, comedy, theater, and dance festivals still took place, albeit virtually. And the silver lining was that online events meant greater access, even global access, for performers and audiences alike. Today, we'll hear from Eli Smith, the founder of the Brooklyn Folk Festival. He's an extraordinary musician, acclaimed as a banjo player with his band, The Downhill Strugglers, as well as a songwriter and curator. Later this hour, he'll tell us how his love of folk music led to a career working with the likes of Steve Earle, Patti Smith, and the Cohen Brothers first. This Sunday, WABE invites you to a live music festival at Sweetwater Brewery, WABE Mixtape Live features local musicians competing for national exposure in NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. Those NPR Tiny Desk concerts are pretty cool. So who better to host WABE's event than the co-founder and chief creative officer of Cool 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 Productions, comedian and writer Mark Kendall. He joins us now via Zoom. Mark, welcome back to City Lights. Hi, Lois. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be able to talk to you. Always. I saw that recently you had four shorts selected for the American Black Film Comedy Festival. These shorts were part of a series of sketches addressing systemic racism. Please tell us about the videos that were featured in the festival. Absolutely. We were so fortunate, honored to have uh, several of the films featured in the American Black Film Festival Comedy Festival. So this was the first year that they had a festival specifically for comedic pieces, which is what we've been working on, uh, especially with my uh, video partner, Bill Worley. So we had one video, which was the first video that we collaborated on together called If Marta Came to Cobb County. So it was a comedic piece talking about uh, Marta expanding to Cobb County as a piece of satire. All right, y'all have a seat. Now, in a crazy turn of events, they have decided to build Marta trains straight to Cobb County. So you know what this means. We are finally taking black crime to Cobb County. This is something we have always wanted to do, but it's only possible now that we have trains. Many a night I've sat up and I've been like, I wish I could rob Cobb County tonight, but all I have is my Escalade. 
The other short that got in was a LeBron solution for Confederate monuments. And that was a fake infomercial where I proposed that we build large bronze statues of LeBron James dunking on uh, Confederate <laughs> statues. The other short uh, that got in was called uh, Uplift the Race. And so that was a piece, it was uh, an internal monologue that ended with uh, local inventor and engineer Lonnie Johnson, who's famous for inventing the super soaker. So he also had a cameo in that film as well. The fourth film was Green Eggs and the N-Word, which was a short film with me reading the Green Eggs and Ham classic by Dr. Seuss, but with a little twist. I would not say the N-Word here. I would not say it there. I would not say the N-Word anywhere. I read. I listen. I really care. When I see blacks, I don't touch their hair. What'd you say in your house? What'd you say to a mouse? No, not in my house, not even to a mouse. I wouldn't say it here or there or anywhere. I don't say the N-word, Sam, I am. I'm not a racist. I have a black friend named Pam. And some of those we had the pleasure of talking about with you last summer, which feels like 14 years ago. You've continued that series over the pandemic with three recent videos, Happy Juneteenth, Life as an Atlanta Sports Fan, and Shark Song, The N-Word of the Sea. In these videos, you are using comedy to address serious topics such as voter suppression, gentrification, and racial injustice writ large. How would you summarize the stories in these three videos? Happy Juneteenth. That sketch was about the mixed feelings that I feel uh, when that holiday comes around. First and foremost, it's a lot of joy and gratefulness reflecting on the amazing progress that African-Americans have made in this country. But then there's also feelings of frustration when you reflect on ways that they've been treated, as well as, you know, the progress that still remains to go. And I feel like around that holiday, around that time of year, I'm feeling both of those things at once. And so it was great to work on that with uh, Bill Worley and Ricky Boynton. I'm just thinking back on the videos they're replaying in my mind because they're so effective. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It's great to be able to collaborate with so many great people. Ricky is such a great actor and scene partner, and Bill's an excellent filmmaker that can direct, shoot, and edit. And so the the collaboration, I feel, with so many great Atlanta artists making those pieces is always so fun. And tell us about life as an Atlanta sports fan. You know, life as an Atlanta sports fan isn't always easy, but this past basketball season, the, the, the playoffs, the Atlanta Hawks were doing great. It was doing so awesome. And I just kind of thought it would be funny if you tried to display those feelings as an Atlanta sports fan, but like in the form of a relationship or like (laughs) a dramatic scene. So uh, Andrea Lang, who's been in several of our pieces, she just elevates everything that she's in. She's just such a phenomenal performer and actress. And so we knew if we had the chance to collaborate with her, she'd just really elevate the material. What do you want, Atlanta sports? The Hawks are in the conference finals. I need your support. Atlanta sports, you've let me down one too many times. Like when the Braves moved to Cobb County or or the biggest Super Bowl collapse in history. (sighs) History. It was 28 to three, yeah? Why didn't you just run the ball? Even the Georgia Dome implosion got blocked by Marta Bus. Hey, what about Atlanta United? We won a soccer national championship, y'all. We have a soccer team? I'm going to go gentrify something. So it was really fun to just kind of like do a piece about the city that we really love while also gently poking fun at certain aspects of it. I think the most stunning impact of your recent videos is conveyed by the shark song. Stunning in terms of how the lyrics, the metaphor made me gasp, Mark. You sing, I bite one of you and you kill thousands of me. I get murdered on camera 
and my killer walks free. How did the shark comparison come to mind? I've been performing shark song live, I think since around 2015 or so, if I remember correctly. And originally it was a piece in my one person show, The Magic Negro and Other Blackness, but it would be in some iterations of it, but it would also be a part of like my stand-up routine as well. So like if I were to go perform stand-up, I'd tweak it there. So it was just a part of my live act for a number of years. And then um, when Bill Worley and I started making videos together, I knew that this was something that I wanted to adapt to video. And so we were just really fortunate in that so many Atlanta artists were kind enough to come together to help us realize it. I mean, work on that video started last summer and, and we released it uh, last month. And so, so it's been, you know, roughly a year or so of working on it on and off with so many talented Atlanta artists. So I'm just so grateful that everyone was willing to collaborate with us on it. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with comedian Mark Kendall. In contrast to the harrowing message of the shark song, we see your face on a fluffy stuffed toy animal version of a shark. Right. You make an adorable little shark swimming around that video, Mark. Oh, thank I gotta you. say. What kind of response have you had from viewers after they've seen these videos? So we're not really like screening these in public just yet. That said, I mean, I think that people have been very kind about sharing the video and sending encouraging messages and having a lot of really nice things to say. So uh, we've been able to build an audience for these videos and they're always really engaged, which is very nice. And, uh, and I think that they appreciate uh, the hard work that we put into them. Hmm. What is your hope? Ultimately, do you receive any compensation? It seems that these take a tremendous amount of creative effort. They do, yeah. So I've been very fortunate. Uh, Bill Worley and I started uh, our own production company, Cool 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 Productions. And so we've started producing our videos through that company. And so in addition to the video projects that we do you know, for entertainment, for example, a shark song or uh, the videos that got into the ABFF comedy festival, for example. We've also been taking on clients and uh, making videos trying to encourage civic engagement. So for example, we recently have been working on videos addressing everything from, like you mentioned, voter suppression or trying to get Georgia voters or Georgia citizens just in general excited about participating in, in the democratic process. So we've been fortunate to take on clients. So ultimately, what's the advantage of using comedy to address such complex issues? I think one thing that comedy can help with is that, you know, people enjoy laughing. People like being entertained, you know? So if you're able to do that first, a lot of times it's a little easier to also mention a piece of information. You know, we all in some way or another maybe get tired of ads, but I mean, like I'll watch comedy all day or, or I love to be entertained, you know? So if there's a way that your comedy or your entertainment or whatever you're making can also get across some like clear information and you make it clear to why it's helpful that the person knows that, that that's the role I feel like comedy can play. And there's certainly is an established tradition of Black comic creativity moving forward important ideas and affecting changes when we think of Dick Gregory, Richard Pryor, Chris Rock. You are doing your part, Mark. Oh, thank you so much, Lois. That's, that's super kind. Thank you. Now, let's talk about this weekend's upcoming concert, the WABE Mixtape Live. Uh, it's a live music festival, and it's going to be taking place August 15th at Sweetwater Brewery, and it's going to go from like noon to 5 p.m. And so the festival is going to feature local entrance to NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. And in addition to the concert, there's also going to be a vendor village with 
local small business owners. I've been listening to the artists that are going to be featured on Sunday's performance, and they are awesome. So it just sounds like a really awesome, fun way to spend a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. How does the Tiny Desk Contest help elevate the music of up-and-coming musicians? Tiny Desk, a little background on that. It's been around for about six years or so, and nearly 30,000 musicians from all 50 states have submitted their videos to the contest with the goal of ultimately being chosen to perform as part of NPR's signature music discovery series. But since the start of Tiny Desk in 2008, it's had more than a thousand performances and they get 16 and a half million viewers each month. So it's a great platform, you know, to get exposed to new artists. I know I check out Tiny Desk concerts pretty regularly and I find new artists from listening to them, either established or up and coming. And so they've had all kinds of performances throughout the years, whether it's been like Megan Thee Stallion, you know, Freddie Gibbs, even Sesame Street. So it's an amazing institution. It is. And locally, we have quite an impressive music scene. Can you talk about the lineup or the styles of some of the musicians we'll hear Sunday? I'd love to. There's five different acts. The first one I'll talk about is O. Jeremiah. They're a husband and wife duo, and they create folk music intended to bring audiences joy. They're super upbeat. They encourage the listener to appreciate the happiness that they already have. I I was listening to some of their music earlier today, and I felt better just listening to it. They really are like such a great, great act. Mariana Tatum uh, is going to be another one of the acts. And so she blends R&B, soul, hip hop, and jazz. And it's just so like, I don't know how else to put it. It's just like so classy, so like... um, so like refined it it was just like i felt fancy just listening to it Open for like music soul child in the past and so I can't wait to see them perform live. The next act is a baby and so they combine like artful lyricism with easygoing pop melodies. They're great to listen to. I've really enjoyed them as well. Leah Sheffield, and I am so excited to see them. No joke, her music, you know, like we all turned to like music and all kinds of art during the pandemic to get through it. And her music absolutely like got me through the pandemic. She had a, a hit that y'all probably may have heard of called Earth is Ghetto. And it just synthesized so many of the, the feelings that I feel like everyone had and was going through during the peak of the pandemic. I mean, she's got a ton of other songs as well. I'm just like so jazzed that she's getting to play. Earth is ghetto, I want to leave, can you beam me up? I'm out on the street by the corner store, you know the one on 15th. Got a bright shirt on so I'm easy to see. I've been down here stranded indefinitely. I can't reach my planet, but I need to leave. You should see these people, it's hard to believe how they treat each other. It's hard to conceive, oh, Earth is ghetto. Her music is like keyboard driven and also has like some R&B in there as well. It's, it's awesome. She's a great songwriter. And then uh, uh, Mystery is a rapper, songwriter, and a dancer. She combines catchy cadences, clever punchlines, and masterful lyrical storytelling. Great songs that stay in your head long after you first hear them. I've seen Mystery Live before, and I was just like super, and this was like a couple of years ago, and I was just super impressed 
by how she's able to work a crowd and she's such a dynamic performer and I'm really excited to get to see her. Again. I know I need you dance everywhere that I go, glorify anytime that I walk, give love every time that I talk. So many times they said I wouldn't be shh. Now I look at myself grateful to be this. Another living legend, I got reasons to be the best me. Homie, let the G in. So those are the acts that I, I can't say enough about them. It's such a nice variety. All of them are such great representatives for Atlanta. And so I'm super excited to get to watch them. And we are so excited to be part of this live gathering. We are taking every precaution to make sure the gathering is COVID safe. Can you just talk a little bit about how it feels to be on stage again in front of a live audience? In, in short, it's great. You know, like, it's great to interact with people in person in that way. For the past, like, year and change, my main connection to audiences through comedy has been through video. And people can comment and engage with the post, but you don't you never hear their laughter or anything like that. And so uh, the few times that I've been able to return back to performance after being vaccinated, it's so great to be able to like hear that audience interaction and getting the chance to see live music is something that I have not done yet. And I'm especially excited for that this coming Sunday. Comedian and writer Mark Kendall. He will host the WABE Mixtape Live event this Sunday from noon to 5 p.m. at Sweetwater Brewery. More information about the lineup and the event can be found on our website, wabe.org slash mixtape live. Coming up, the founder of the Brooklyn Folk Festival, Eli Smith. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Eli Smith is an extraordinary musician who honors a tradition of what he prefers to call old-time or down-home music. Most people would describe that style as folk music. And Eli Smith is highly acclaimed for his work as a banjo player with his band, the Downhill Strugglers, founder of the Brooklyn Folk Festival, songwriter and curator of folk music. He joins us now via Zoom. Eli Smith, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Now, you are a folk musician who grew up in a very urban setting, Greenwich Village in New York City. What first drew you to the genre? Well, I remember hearing folk music or down-home music, as I like to say, back when I was a kid, as a teenager, on records at first, not live, but on uh, CDs and records that I, that I came upon. And I heard Mississippi John Hurt and Woody Guthrie I loved their music very much, and it was unlike anything that I had heard on the radio or on television or from my friends uh, at that time. My brothers and my sisters are stranded on this road, a hot and dusty road that a million feet have trod. 
Rich man took my home and drove me from my door And I ain't got no home in this world anymore It spoke to me. It had a, some kind of human scale or some kind of truth that I guess I was looking for back at that time. And I was taken with it immediately and it, it became uh, my life as a musician and, and, and as, a, as a producer. Folk music as a genre is notoriously difficult to define as my intro <laughs> referred to. What does the term folk music mean to you? Well, thank you for that question. It is a very diverse genre, and genres are a commercial designation anyway that are part of the, the music industry, which folk music in some ways represents itself as not being a part of. And so to me, folk music is, is your music. We are the folk, and folk music is the music that is meaningful to you on a certain level. On another level, Folk music is the people's history of music. A lot of people have heard of Howard Zinn's book, People's History of the United States. And if you really get into it, you'll find that folk music is the people's history of music. It's not the history of the commercial music world necessarily, although it's clearly related, but it's an alternative history and an alternative story of what music is. Uh, in this country and around the world. And it's a very grassroots story that deals with music that is created by and sustained by communities of people, whomever they may be. And that's what folk music is to me, yeah. And so within your definition or your vision of folk music, would the blues be included? Yes, of course. Uh, I mean, blues music, of course, is connected to the early recording industry and uh, the mass culture. But blues music, of course, emerged from communities, particularly African-American communities in the Deep South. Have you ever looked over a mountain? One you ain't never seen. Have you ever looked over a mountain? A mountain you've never seen Have you ever laid down in your bed And had one of them lonesome dreams But blues, once again, is a genre within popular music. And the reality is that things aren't neat. They're not neatly divided into genres or into uh, terms like the blues. Blues music is a part of rural African-American folk music going back into the early 20th century when blues music was defined, but even in, you know, in obviously into the 19th century and earlier as far back as you'd like to go. And these are traditions that were carried on by people through history. And folk music is strongly connected to history and to memory. And that's something that I try to do with the music that I produce, like at the Brooklyn Folk Festival and events like that, is to give people a connection uh, to history and to memory, which is something I think we're sorely, sorely lacking in this, in this country. Uh, sort of, we live in kind of an amnesiac country where everything is in, in the moment and as a result, <laughs> no one has any idea what's going on. Let's talk about your band, the Downhill Strugglers. How did you come up with the name? Uh, yes, well, there's a tradition, you might say, in, uh, within the field of old-time string bands, which is what we are, old-time, so-called old-time music, is the kind of rural string band music that was played in the United States uh, going back hundreds of years.
in the 1940s, it kind of changed and developed into, into bluegrass music that a lot of people are familiar with. But old time music is the kind of rural American uh, string band folk music that was present all throughout the country going back you know, hundreds of years. So there's a tradition of sort of funny names of old time string bands self-effacing. So we thought the, the <laughs> Downhill Strugglers would be a, a, a funny name for our band, sort of a wry, a wry name. Ah, he, there's the Brooklyn coming through. You get the irony. <laughs> well, it's true. Although, the, you know, there's like, uh, like one of our favorite bands is like called like the Skillet Lickers, you know, or the Fruit Jar Drinkers or, all, you know, all these f like funny string band names from uh, back when. For what you are describing about the old time string bands, I thought about the Carolina chocolate drops. Would they be included? Of course, yeah, right. That, that, that would be a good example of a relatively contemporary string band who some of your listeners may be familiar with. They, of course, are reclaiming or perhaps restoring the African-American tradition. You're right. The, in the, before recording kind of took off, string band music was very strong in the African-American community. And blues music, so-called blues music, was a subsection of African-American string band music and African-American folk music. It's all very related. It's, it, they're not separate things at all. And of course, the banjo is America's African instrument. The uh, banjo came here uh, in the minds, if not actually in the hands of uh, enslaved people that were forced to come here from Africa. And that's how the instrument uh, came here in the first place. Eli, when did you take up banjo? Well, I played guitar, you know, when I was a kid. And... Uh, as I started to get more into the music, I was hearing banjo music. I think I started playing banjo when I was about 13 years old, living in downtown Manhattan there. But I had nobody to teach me. So you taught yourself? Initially, yeah. And then I, I started to meet people as I got a little older and learned, learned things from people here and there, including even Pete Seeger at a certain point when I was young. I got to know him a little bit in the last few years of his life. Wow. How would you rate... Steve Martin. Oh, Steve Martin, you know, he's a fantastic um, banjo player, very, very, very talented blue, bluegrass banjo player. Not so much the old time styles, but of course, he, you know, it's funny because he's a celebrity comedian and yet he's one of the banjo players that people are familiar with. Uh, and that's one way that the, the music kind of gets out because it is so sort of suppressed or not covered by the music journalists that a lot of people aren't familiar with the music. But some of the ways that it gets out is through people like Steve Martin that play the banjo or through uh, popular films like Oh Brother Where Art Thou? And then all of a sudden people get a taste of the music. But in general, it's really not represented in the media. It's very much an underground music movement. You have collaborated with the Cohen brothers, appearing on the soundtrack to Inside Lewin Davis. How did you come to work with them? Yeah, that's right. That, that was a pleasure. And that film is very deep. It represents sort of the, <laughs> the plight of the folk singer uh, in, a very, in a very real way. Uh, it was cool to get to work with the Cone Brothers. I'm a big fan of their films. And we had one song, uh, which I sing, called The Roving Gambler on the soundtrack to the Inside Lewin Davis film. We used to play with a musician named John Cohen, who was a founder of the string band, the New Lost City Ramblers, sort of the great string band from the middle of the 20th century with Mike Seeger and Tom Paley. And the Cohen brothers were fans, I think, of John Cohen, no relation, because he was really one of the great he was one of the great artists in the folk revival 
uh, that started out, you know, in the 20th century. John passed on uh, last year at the age of 87. He was our teacher and our friend, as well as our bandmate. Uh, and we certainly miss him very much. But I think the Coen brothers wanted to include John in the film somehow. And it was really, I think, as a result of that, that, that we were made part of that film. I encourage everyone, all your listeners, to check out the work of John Cohen. Uh, look him up as a photographer, a filmmaker, a musician, a uh, uh, ethnologist, field recorder. Uh, just amazing body of work uh, uh, by John Cohen. Singer, songwriter, and banjo player, Eli Smith. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with the Brooklyn-based musician Eli Smith. He chronicles folk music as well as performs it. Folk music historically has played an important role in times of political and social turmoil. Can you take us through some examples? Yes, absolutely. In times of political unrest and economic turmoil, as you say, I think the idea of folk music sort of comes back in the, in the minds of the public. It happened in the 1930s into the World War II era with artists like Woody Guthrie and uh, Pete Seeger and others. There's a better world that's a-coming, don't you see, see, see? There's a better world that's a-coming, don't you see? When we'll all be union and we'll all be free, there's a better world that's a-coming, don't you see? There's a better world a-coming, and don't you know, no, no? There's a better world that's a-coming, don't you know? And then it happened again during the worldwide social revolutions in the 1960s, the idea of folk music came back. Come and gather round friends and I'll tell you a tale of when the red iron our pits are on the plenty put the cardboard filled windows and old men on the benches tell you now that the whole town is empty In the north end of town, my own children have grown. But I was raised on the other. In the wee hours of youth, my mother took sick. And I was brought up by my brother. The iron ore poured as the years passed the door. The drag lines and shovels, he was humming. Till one day my brother failed to come home. The same as my father before him. I guess the reason for it is that in times like these that are very, very alienating, and it's scary. People look for something that they perceive as authentic um, and something that's true or you know, something that one could hold on to. And I, and I think that's a reason that, that the idea of folk music comes back during trying times. And it's important. I, I think popular music, pop music has its place obviously, but it's not, it's not really the, the heart music. The heart music is is something that's more intimate and, and more human scale. And that's what I look for in folk music. And I think that's something that can be helpful to people in terms of having something to hold on to in terms of their identity and in terms of the, the national, the culture. And I, that's something that I try to offer in my work. So you see yourself as sort of a folk music apostle? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, sure. You know, uh, I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm, I just, I'm producing, I, I run a small record label here in New York, Jalopy Records. We put out, we put out records, have my band. 
and the Brooklyn Folk Festival and the Washington Square Park Folk Festival in Greenwich Village that I also produce a smaller event. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to try to get the word out about the music that we're doing and because it's really, a, it's a grassroots, it's an underground music movement. And I, uh, that's, I think that's sorely needed in this country is a good, is a good underground music movement. of the old underground music movements you know they eventually get co-opted and, and become part of the sort of <laughs> like cultural power structure it, it happened to punk it happened to rap but somehow the sort of old grassroots music just kind of keeps going in an underground way and for people that are interested they can they can tap into that well what traditional artists would you recommend eli to people who might be interested in beginning to learn about folk music but don't know where to start? Well, I, I loved Mississippi John Hurt and Woody Guthrie when I, when I was young and first getting into the music. I'd recommend them to everybody. Make me down, pat it on your throat. Make me down. Make me a pallet down soft and low. Make me a pallet on your floor. And of course, John Cohen's old band, the New Lost City Ramblers. I would recommend uh, the anthology of American folk music on the Folkways Records label. That's a, just a fantastic compilation, anthology of American folk music. It includes, it includes Mississippi John Hurt, but also artists like Clarence Ashley. Memphis Jug Band. There's so many. It's, it's really a, once you get into it, it's a world of music that is very, very rich. And, and are there some modern artists who are doing a great job but in addition to yourself and the Downhill Strugglers? Who else is carrying the torch that you might recommend to our listeners? Well, there, there are many, and it's a shame to leave people out, but Two that I would recommend uh, immediately is Jerron Paxton, known as Blind Boy Paxton. He's a friend and, and just a really a, amazing carrier of uh, a number of traditions in, a, in American folk music. And then one of my favorite string bands in the country is uh, out of Arkansas called the Ozark Highballers. Uh, <laughs> like a highball freight train, you know, the old, the old freight trains. Oh, not the bar drink. Right. <laughs> Uh, 
productivity doesn't seem to be a problem with you, Eli. I mean, just looking over the past 10 months or so, and I see you have a new album called The Secret Museum of Mankind. That's a provocative title. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. What, what's on that album? Well, there's a record collector here in New York named Pat Conti. And, and for many years, he has been amassing perhaps the world's great collection of 78 RPM records from around the world. 78 RPM records were the first type of records that were developed back in the teens and were issued uh, from then sort of through World War II. Uh, everybody should look up 78 RPM records. And, you know, after that came LPs, 45s and stuff like that. But Pat has the great collection of 78s from around the world. And back in the 90s, he curated a very, you know, well-respected and influential collection called the Secret Museum of Mankind based on his collection. Pat is a friend uh, here, and uh, he has restarted his series with the first new edition of the, in the series, uh, you know, since the 1990s. People can look that up. Uh, the Secret Museum of Mankind, Guitars, Volume 1, Prelude to Modern Styles. So if you want to hear the roots of guitar music from around the world with really fantastic recordings by artists who you will never otherwise hear, uh, you can look that up. So that's a, it, that's a, a, uh, album of historical you know archival recordings obviously it's not it's not living artists it's a really well curated historic very rare uh, recordings speaking of historic a lot of the songs with your band sound like they could have been recorded in the 1930s would you talk about your recording process yes of course the medium of recording is, is interesting. How things are recorded and presented changes the way that we hear them. And also uh, for my band, the Downhill Strugglers, as an old time string band, we are looking back. I mean, it's called old time music for a reason. It's, it's, it's not a forward looking music. It's, it's music that um, is looking backward into history and drawing from that very, very much and, and in a, very concerted way. So we love the uh, old historic artists that are our predecessors and our heroes, and we're trying to sound like them, not, a, not in a, like, we're trying to sound like them in a way that's authentic to us, obviously, but is also consistent with the tradition and the history of the music. So for example, we'll, we'll record using one microphone no overdubs, no studio tricks. What you are hearing is, is our performance based on practicing and working on our music over a long period of time. So it's in a way, it's, it's, it's just a natural sound. And that's, that's, that's what we're, we're going for. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's, that's our sound, both as in our performance and in the quality of recording that we're, that we're using. Singer, songwriter, and banjo player Eli Smith. His band is the Downhill Strugglers. Smith is also the founder of the Brooklyn Folk Festival. This year's festival is scheduled for November 12th and 13th. And you can learn more at brooklynfolkfest.com. We are delighted to share this news. On Tuesday... Netflix announced it's adding a second season for the series High on the Hog, How African-American Cuisine Transformed America. In each episode, host and Atlanta chef Stephen Satterfield traces the origins of African-American food. The series is based on a book by culinary historian Dr. Jessica B. Harris, or Dr. J, as Satterfield calls her. She guides the show by looking at how black food culture informed what we traditionally thought of as American food. 
from yams to okra to collard greens. Viewers learn about African origin staples and the resourcefulness of enslaved African Americans creating meals from whatever they had. The show has won critical acclaim since its premiere in May. Next season's focus will continue to be on systemic racism and possibly the impact of the coronavirus. You can hear our interview with host Stephen Satterfield on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Abby Wendell of the NPR podcast Invisibilia shares everything you never knew you needed to know about Norwegian slow TV. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Cranston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Kunavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and complete shows are on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights, wishing you a safe and good weekend, and thanks for listening to WABE at Latta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.